I stood perfectly still, listening. Apart from my heart, there was no sound. I lit another match and felt my way carefully towards the fuse box by the front door. There was a mirror just next to it, and it was then that I saw him behind me, the rapist from the picture, with his cold, thin face and terrible eyes. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening and welcome to you wherever you are in the world. This is James Schofield, the creator of the stories in Behind the Bottom Line. Now, the music should tell you something. Today's story from Behind the Bottom Line is not for people of a nervous disposition. It's a story of evil set free by a careless art forger and his assistant. So make sure the lights are on that your nearest and dearest are close by to comfort you in case it all gets too much. And listen now to a tale of mystery and horror. Listen to the book. The police found Derek Ebden with his head smashed in on the floor of his studio in North London. Their theory is that somebody had found out Derek was an art forger. It's not a bad theory. You make a lot of enemies if you sell fake old master drawings. Investors, for example, when they find out that the Michelangelo sketch they paid so much money for is suddenly worthless. Or art historians who have to tear up everything they've written about Rembrandt because their theories were based on fakes. You see, the whole art market with millions of dollars invested, is at risk when there's no confidence that what is bought and sold is genuine. So it's true, Derek had many potential enemies, but his murderer wasn't one of them. I can say this because I was his assistant at the time, so I know what really happened. Derek was a Brilliant artist, just not very original. Like most art students, he learned his trade by copying masterpieces by Titian, Velázquez or Leonardo. But what made him special was that he didn't just copy. He could produce new masterpieces in their style. It was as if he had brought them back to life. After art school, he found it difficult to make an honest living as an artist. So one day, when he had no money, he did a little sketch of a woman's head in the style of a Rubens, sold it to a commercial gallery, and began a career as a forger. Oh, he was amazing. He preferred drawings to paintings because they were easier to sell, and he could imitate the technique of the original artist so perfectly that not even the experts noticed any difference. Even the scientists didn't have a chance. We made our own ink and chalk based on original recipes, and we got the drawing paper by buying old books. They always had a couple of blank pages at the beginning or the end. We'd remove those 
resell the books, and then Derek could create his drawings on authentic paper from the time of the artist in question. It was practically impossible to prove they weren't originals. One day, Derek came to the studio with a book he'd bought. It had large pages and, best of all, was only half filled with something handwritten in French. The other pages were blank. What's it about? I asked, looking at the strange black script, full of numbers, with the occasional little diagram. I couldn't understand anything, but it looked unpleasant, even sinister. Some alchemy or witchcraft nonsense, said Derek. It's from about 1700. They were crazy about that stuff then. This paper will be perfect for Watto. Watto was one of Derek's favourite artists. He was an early 18th century painter who'd done pictures of ladies and gentlemen in parks and gardens, dancing and flirting, with maybe a little bit of polite sex going on in the background. Just right for his aristocratic French customers. To prepare his paintings, Watto did lots of sketches, which always sold for a good price when they came on the market. We cut out the pages of the book, and Derek got to work. After a week, he had about three pages filled with beautiful little aristocratic figures in different poses and 18th century clothing. I was admiring them when I noticed something strange. Derek, what's this? I asked. It was just a small detail. The technique was Watto, but the content was not. It showed a man standing over a naked girl who was screaming in terror. You couldn't see his face properly, but there was something horrible about him. I said earlier that Watto liked to hint at a bit of polite sex going on in his pictures, didn't I? But this looked like rape. I didn't do that, Derek said. I mean, I had a couple there, but nothing like that. He took it back and reworked it into something completely different. But the next day, when he was checking one of the other sheets, Derek found a tiny picture of the same girl but now she looked dead. Near the body was a cold, thin face he hadn't drawn either, staring at us with contempt. What about the third sheet? he asked. We checked it inch by inch. Nothing, thank God. What are we going to do? I asked. I'm taking this sheet to a dealer now. You burn the others. What about the book? I didn't want to even look at it. Oh, didn't I tell you? I sold it on eBay yesterday. Somebody is picking it up tonight. 
It was dark as he drove off, and, I admit, I was afraid. I took the two sheets of paper, put them in the kitchen sink, and lit the edges. They burnt with a blue-green flame, and it seemed to me that as the pictures blackened, they changed from harmless illustrations of an 18th century dream into scenes of torture, murder and terror. I gave a cry and moved away, and as the flames died, all the lights blew. I stood perfectly still, listening. Apart from my heart, there was no sound. I lit another match and felt my way carefully towards the fuse box by the front door. There was a mirror just next to it, and it was then that I saw him behind me, the rapist from the picture with his cold, thin face and terrible eyes. I was out the door and running across the street so fast that I never even saw the taxi that knocked me over and left me unconscious in hospital for a week. So poor Derek had no warning when he returned home. The man who'd bought the book called the police when he saw the blood coming from under the front door. But the book itself was gone. That's the part that worries me. I don't know how, but somehow that book makes evil come alive. Question is, where is it now? And what is it doing? The book was written for Business Spotlight in 2017. When I was at university, I did history and history of art. And this story brings together two of my interests from that time. One of them is the history of the occult, the history of magic. And uh, I actually did uh, a paper on um, the topic of magic, science and religion in 16th and 17th century uh, England. There were a lot of very, very clever men who spent their lives trying to discover things like the Philosopher's Stone, um, which is not just an invention from Harry Potter, um, something that could turn lead into gold. Um, and they produced an awful lot of uh, extraordinary writing. Um, uh, their writings were deliberately obscure because they believed the more obscure it was, the more um, esoteric and more valuable it was. Now, looking back at what they did now, uh, a lot of it, you would say, well, it was a, a, an awful lot of wasted effort. But of course, indirectly, a lot of the things that they discovered in their research, in their trying to turn lead into gold, uh, led to the establishment of science as we know it. A lot of people who now qualify as early scientists, for example, Isaac Newton, um, also in their time studied alchemy.
I've also always been very interested in the topic of art forgery. And the central character in the story, Derek Ebden, is loosely based on a famous forger called Eric Hebben. And Eric Hebben was a brilliant draftsman. He studied at the Royal Academy of Art, um, but he wasn't able to make a living as an artist. And so he turned to forgery and dealing in old master drawings. And his technique was to sell old master drawings, some of which were authentic and some of which were actually produced by him. And the techniques that I describe in the short story, taking paper from the backs of old books, uh, making his own ink out of acorns, this was actually the technique that Hebben used in order to create his his um, drawings. What is especially interesting about Eric Hebben is that he had a very mysterious death. He was found on a Rome street with his head cracked open and the Italian police uh, never investigated for murder, which is a, a little bit strange for somebody who is found with their head cracked open on the street. And there is a suggestion that the mafia were in some way involved in it, which makes sense because the mafia can use valuable works of art in order to launder money earned through drug dealing. But if it then turns out that the valuable work of art is actually a fake, which is worth nothing, uh, then they've just lost a lot of money. So something of a mystery there about how uh, Eric Hebben died. And what I found when I was dreaming up this story was that these two things came together. My interest in the history of uh, magic and my interest in forgery. And I like the idea of this ancient occult work being brought to life by this forger when he cuts out the pages from the book and starts to use it in order to create his forgeries. Trying to write a horror story is something a little bit unusual for me. Um, I've read my Edgar Allan Poe and my H.P. Lovecraft, and I wanted to see if I could do something a little bit like one of their stories. I hope you found it creepily entertaining, and you'll be back next week to listen to The Debt. A woman finds a way to repay a debt to somebody who helped her get a start in life. If you like Behind the Bottom Line, why don't you visit my website www.behindthebottomline.com and leave a review or give the show a rating. It would help me a lot. You can also do that on Apple Podcasts. So until next week, this is James Schofield saying take care and goodbye.